Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about a simple way to explain quantum physics with a special guest, astrophysicist George Greenstein. You'll also learn about how to survive falling without a parachute and how to avoid speed dating mistakes when adopting a dog. Let's adopt some curiosity. We cover a lot of stories about quantum mechanics on this show, and we think we do a pretty good job of making it easy to understand. But let's be honest, it's a branch of science that's not exactly a walk in the park to figure out. Fortunately, George Greenstein has spent decades thinking about it. So we are welcoming him back for the second part of our conversation on this show. He's the author of the new book, Quantum Strangeness, Wrestling with Bell's Theorem and the Ultimate Nature of Reality. And he's about to get into what Ashley says is one of the best explanations of quantum mechanics she's ever heard. Yeah, and I think it's going to rock some worlds. Let's start with George summarizing some of the major challenges of quantum theory in general. I'm sure you've encountered all these things and your listeners have encountered all these things. It says so many mysterious things. It says that the electron is a particle, but it's also a wave. It says that things happen for no reason at all. It says that God plays dice with the universe. That was Einstein's phrase. It says there's this famous uncertainty principle that you can measure how fast something is going or where it is, but you can't measure both. And it's not just that you can't measure them, but quantum theory has no way to express both of these things at once. So it just seems totally incomplete. Incomplete is the word Einstein used. And as we heard yesterday, he and Niels Bohr never really settled on the best way to approach it. So we asked George, does this mean that quantum physics explains the way things actually are? And classical physics just shows us the things we can perceive and measure? He said, not so much. Here's how he explained the difference. Quantum mechanics refers to things that are too small for us to see. But a lot of classical mechanics also refers to things that are too small for us to see. Furthermore, as technology improves, we're able to build larger and larger things that behave in quantum fashions. You've heard of quantum computers. They are very much on the forefront now. They're not really part of our daily lives. But I am willing to bet that our children or our grandchildren are going to carry quantum computers around in their pockets and use them in the same way that we use cell phones. Quantum physics is not really about things that are small. It just happens at the moment that only things that are small obey principles that are so obviously quantum. So I think a better thing to say is classical physics is an approximation to what quantum physics looks like in certain realms, but that the underlying physics is quantum all the way. And what we think of as our normal everyday experience is a sort of crude, rough, rubbing elbows against quantum mechanics without enough insight to realize what's happening. That's a fascinating way to think about it. Like yeah. that ball that you know the position and direction of is full of quantum interactions and you're just you're witnessing it as a ball, even though there are just tons of things happening in it that are quantum that you can't see. That's absolutely perfect. That's you you put it better than I could. <laughs> even though quantum physics might not make a whole lot of quote unquote sense. George Greenstein does an amazing job of explaining how you can better understand it in his new book. You can find a link to pick up Quantum Strangeness, Wrestling with Bell's Theorem, and The Ultimate Nature of Reality in today's show notes. And don't let the word quantum scare you off, because it's a very accessible read. And we hope it and today's interview help you understand the quantum world a little bit better.
here's a life skill you'll hopefully never need. In the extremely unlikely chance that you find yourself hurtling out of an airplane without a parachute, here's what you need to know to survive. Because it is possible to survive. In fact, it's been done before. Depending on how high up you are, you won't have more than a few minutes before you hit the ground. That first minute or two may not even count because you'll probably pass out from a lack of oxygen. When you wake up again at around 18,000 feet, plan to immediately start looking for the best landing spot. Swamps, snow, and grass are all ideal because they provide cushioning for your fall. Trees or bushes are the next best option, although the branches may hurt. If you think water is a good place to land, you'd be dead wrong, quite literally. Your body will hit the water just as hard as it would the sidewalk. And if the fall doesn't kill you, you'll likely drown. But back to the airtime. You've probably seen people falling with their body in a shape of an X. That's good to slow down your fall once you've found your target. But first, bring your arms and legs in against your body like a bobsledder so you can steer yourself toward your landing spot. Then your goal should be to land vertically, feet first with your legs together. This is especially important if you absolutely have to land in water because it minimizes the surface area that'll get pummeled by the water. And in this situation, remember to clench your butt. If you're landing on land, on the other hand, you still want to be vertical, but you'll want to bend your knees and allow your body to fall sideways so your feet are followed by your calf, thigh, butt, and shoulder. Most critically, protect your head, particularly the back near your brainstem. If the steps I just described seem petrifying, remember that you're probably never going to need this advice. A car ride is 470 times more likely to kill you per mile traveled. In either case, you definitely want to buckle up. Psychologists who study how people pick their spouses have turned their attention to another important relationship, choosing a canine companion. They recently found that when it comes to puppy love, the heart doesn't always know what it wants. As reported by Futurity, the researchers used data from a working animal shelter to find results that could help improve the pet adoption process. Most of the participants in the dog adoption study listed many traits they preferred when they were adopting a dog, but they ended up choosing dogs based on just a few of those preferences. So if you're going to adopt a dog, narrow your list to your top few preferences and don't bring in a laundry list of traits you're hoping to find. These results were similar to human speed dating studies, which have shown that people's stated romantic preferences tend not to match the partners they choose. Another similarity between dog adoption and speed dating is that looks matter, since most participants in this study said they've got a handsome or good-looking dog. But dog adopters might miss a good match if they focus too strongly on specific physical and personality traits. On top of that, there may be a disconnect in the way the adopter and shelter describe the same dog. Shelters are high-stress environments for dogs, and that means their personalities may shift when they're more relaxed at home. That's why the researchers say animal shelters need to know that people tend to rely on certain traits more strongly when choosing a dog. When they're aware of this, it could help them match adopters to dogs with better accuracy. Shelters should also consider interventions, like temporarily putting dogs in a calmer environment to help stressed or under-socialized dogs put their best paw forward. And this study suggests that you might want to think twice about online adoption, since in those cases, you're depending on someone else's description of the dogs. If you do have to adopt online, then try to limit your search criteria to your few most desired traits, and that way you'll avoid filtering out a good match based on less important preferences. 
Before we recap what we learned today, here's a sneak peek at what you can catch this weekend on Curiosity.com. This weekend, you'll learn about a quirky music video celebrating the Apollo 11 anniversary with lots of Velcro, three ways scientists can measure consciousness, a study that found that Facebook posts can predict 21 health problems, and more. And today, we learned that quantum physics is kind of the underlying reality that we don't always see. Still mind-blowing. And that you're more likely to survive a fall from an airplane if you land feet first. And that if you're adopting a dog, then go in with a few traits in mind, not a long list. Just like if you're going into a first date. Yeah, just let it happen. See who see who you like. Swipe right on the right one. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And have a great weekend. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. Stay curious.